Blog Talk Radio. Aloha. Welcome to Talking Pictures. I'm your host, Paul Booth. As always, thank you for joining us. Today is a special, special episode. And, yeah, I am trying to contain myself with excitement and joy because this is uh, not going to be an episode where we interview a director, which we, of course, love doing. Uh, it's not going to be any promo, and we obviously love doing that. Let's face it, we love doing everything movies. So with that, for you new listeners, uh, we like this to be a kickback show. So we encourage you to grab some tea or water, or even for the guests, um, we encourage that better than have a dry throat, you feel comfortable on the show. So I will occasionally take a quiet sip of water, and it's not me being unprofessional. But today we're going to talk about, well, the conversation is going to go, I call it, all over the country. Because when you talk movies, you start off in San Diego and you end up in Boston and then you decide you're going to get gas in Florida. And that's a great metaphor for anyone who loves movie talk. We, there's just no way of staying on topic. So what I learned um, from doing this was our two guests, um, I had asked them for a list of topics. And of course, what was interesting was what I would write down and what they wrote down was kind of the same thing. So I thought that was ironic, but um, they taught me about just going with the flow and it removed me from being the host and put me in just being someone who loves talking film. So I want to say thank you to the guests for that without sounding all sappy while they're on the line. Uh, Let's see, we have one of our guests and I will, uh, see who the guest is, then I'll um, introduce them. One moment. Hello, Aloha, this is welcome. Hi. Hi, Lee. How's it going today? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Let me, uh, let me, I'm going to introduce you. I'm going to bring in Quincy and introduce him, and okay. then we'll get going. Awesome. Okay, so Lee is with us. I'm going to um, introduce her and... Uh, Quincy, who has just called in, then I will introduce him. Uh, Briefly, again, since we said uh, that we're not promoting today, we just want to let you know that we have two fantastic film directors with us. Uh, You can catch their movie on video on demand, and I only say that so you know uh, the caliber of artists that you're getting today and to hear opinions and what their favorite films are. So uh, we have Lee Liu. Uh, There is a new world somewhere. Uh, It actually has a higher rating than Citizen Kane, so that's awesome. And then uh, then Quincy Rose. And what's really cool about this is I've I've never met either one of these guests. I've I've spoken with them multiple times over email or or Facebook chat. So this is really kind of cool because I think you guys could agree. Oh, sorry. And then we have Quincy Rose. who has a film out and uh, or I think it's coming out in October. Sorry, Quincy. Um, uh, and it's called Friends, Effing Friends, Effing Friends. Hilarious movie. 
So write that down. Today, get your pen and paper out because we're going to talk about a lot of films that you're going to want to write down. So welcome. Uh, good afternoon to you, Quincy. Hey, Paul. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. No problem. Hi, Paul. Hi, Lilu. Hi, Quincy. Hello. Good to finally meet you. Yeah, you too. And by the way, do you like to be called Lilu or just Lee? It's just Lee. It's just Lee. Okay, because yeah. for some reason in my head I had it together, and I was like, either way, it's awesome, but uh, <laughs> it roll, It just rolls right off yeah, the tongue. Yeah, pe- people tend to do that. You know, I only got four letters to my name, so sometimes people yeah. just like to <laughs> collect all of them, but yeah. You must be yeah, on uh, some list of shortest uh, full names. You know. Yeah, and I've had people tell me that they've known a Lilu. It's either that or the Fifth Element story that I get over and over again. <laughs> but it's great. It's Ooh. fine. Yeah. yeah. Hey, well, that's Paul, nice good. to meet um, you on the phone. Oh, yes. Nice to meet you, too. Um, I also have a four-letter name, but you didn't say anything, Quincy. No, I'm just kidding. I do have a last name, so... No, but uh, yeah. I'm glad that you brought that up, Quincy, because I've been calling her... Uh, Lilu to Guess and to Jonah and uh, it wasn't until she said hi it's Lee just now before you came on that I got oh it's Lee so uh, that was a great (laughs) thing of you to clear up now what I wanted to say that was interesting and first of all in honor of our show because we all list a network on our topics I have the mic sitting on the two-disc copy of Network that I rented from the library. So Sydney Lamette is with us today in some form or shape. Um, That's wonderful. Uh, obviously, you, I was saying before you guys came on, it was such a great thing you guys taught me about as a host. I'm so used to having to have a list because I have to myself not get off track. So the way you guys said, let's just go with this, really taught me a lot so I want to thank you that and so now that we've done that let's just spin the wheel who would like to start and what would they like to start with maybe let's maybe let's start with the 70s because that's a good place and a significant change in American cinema yeah um Sure, I think we. Well, do you want to start with Sydney with with his work in the seventies? Yeah, let's start I mean, with let's start with let's start with Sydney. Why not? I mean, honestly, picking up his book, making movies, when I was in high school, changed my life. I think that book solidified and amplified everything that I hoped and wanted to do. And just hearing about his process in a very kind of open way through the book, and then using the book. It's almost like when he spoke about a film that he made, I would go and see it, and I would sort of process it kind of simultaneously that way. And, of course, his films that he did in the 70s with Network and Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon, I think that was such an important time, and also his view of the country at the time as well. Um, And I always just felt like he never... Maybe now, but like he he just really he, because he's continued to make films up into his death and was quite prolific. People tend to forget that you know oh yeah he was he's just as as pinnacle and just as you know gargantuan as the other people around that time. Uh, yes, uh, Quincy, do you have a 
Um, I know the 70s, um, I, I guess I want to say long, yeah, long day's journey and tonight is 60s. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Quincy, do you have a, I know this is always the hardest question for filmmakers, but um, do you have, uh, with the network, how do you feel about this theory of, I watch it now and I think it's a horror film. And we won't go into yeah. media and all that. Sure. But what what do you think about that comment? Oh, uh, well, I mean, I don't know that you can comment on that comment without going into the current state of, you know, politics and stuff. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but I yeah. would say that Network was obviously a, a masterpiece and, um, you know, written by the great Patty Chayefsky. And my mm-hmm. introduction, if I'll just comment on Sidney Lumet, was, uh, uh, was just I was raised by a filmmaker. And so as a kid, I was introduced to films uh, that were ahead of my years. Um, mm-hmm. And so I always was told this is a great thing and you should be watching it like, I mean, what year was Serpico? Uh, 70. 74, 73. And I yeah. wasn't born yet, so I was born in 74. But definitely, by the time I was six or seven, uh, definitely younger than 10 or around 10, my father would, you know, oh, come on in here. you, you got to watch this. And I would watch Dog Day Afternoon, have no idea what was really going on. <laughs> um, oh, my God. Uh, Network, at least, is funny. You know, you can laugh yeah. at Network as a kid because you don't have right. to understand the full ramifications. There's an angry man on TV screaming out a window and it's hilarious, but it's not till years later that I was able to fully appreciate and understand, uh, what was going on in these films. Um, uh, but, uh, I, I, you know, so that was my experience with, uh, I think everything in the seventies, all the films was, I was highly encouraged to watch them as a a very young child. Uh, and then only when I got older, did I start thinking, oh, I have to rewatch these and this is exciting. And, uh, um, yeah, yeah. but, uh, yeah, I don't think you can comment on, on, on that comment, uh, without. Going no, that's, today. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I should have thought about that. But what I want to let people know is, is that network, I always keep track of the way I know when a limit film was made is because, I go back to what Oscar robbed him of best picture or best director or, and okay, of course, Godfather two was better than Serpico direction wise, but dog day afternoon people, you know, I've argued with a lot of people, whether or not Pacino should have got it for dog day or Nicholson. And it's not about awards, but then uh, with network um, for me, there's no way Rocky was a better movie. Um, if you look at <laughs> just what directing is, what what landmark storytelling is. Uh, for Network, before we move on, I just want to say to people, please go out and watch this film. This is uh, what, what we can say about the media is that this was made in 1977. And this was almost like, and not indictment, but it shows you this world that was going to come down the pike 30 years later. And I guess that's the true yeah. sign of an iconoclast with Lamette and Chayefsky's writing. And it brings up the idea of reality shows when, mm-hmm. uh, you know, my parents got together in 77 and my dad 
always tells me when he sees that film with me, he's like, like, you, you guys will never understand how far-fetched this movie seemed. Like, so <laughs> to see Keeping That's Up with the Kardashians is like, yeah, yeah it, it's just like wild. So with Network, If I, if I may course, interject one thing, oh, yeah. uh, a very interesting film, which I've seen recently, is really quite spectacular and um, truly kind of bizarre, is a film by, uh, it's a current film by director Robert Greene. It's called Kate plays Christine and it's about Caitlin Shield taking on this uh, role of Christine Chubbick who was a real life news reporter in Florida in Sarasota Florida in the 70s who killed herself on live television she was yeah there's that film coming out now yeah yeah it's already out it's fantastic Mm -hmm. oh wait there's another film coming out about it where Rebecca Hall plays her yeah this is Mm -hmm. a very interesting film within a film within a film there's not even really the film that they're making it's about making a documentary and it's very surreal it's interesting but it's called Kate Plays Christine but that that incident is what uh influence that uh, Patty Chayefsky's decision with the um, the, net, mm-hmm. the person who was going to kill himself uh, in network. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not related. It's not the story of network isn't the story of that, but it, 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 I mean, it's not, not related, but it's not the whole obviously uh, inspiration for, but it's, it is related. So it's, it's interesting. Anyway, that's taking it yeah. way off subject. Sort of. Oh no. no, no. I'm to point out that's a fantastic film. I'm so curious because you said you you come from a filmmaking family, Quincy, and, and you see you saw these iconic films from the 70s and onwards when you were quite young. I mean, did the identity oh, yeah. of these films change for you when you would revisit them as an adult? And did some did some sort of expand as you watched them with you know wise and eyes, or did also did some kind of been like, what was that? Like I didn't, I don't, I still can't sort of see this film as something that I would, I as an adult now can appreciate and like, cause that must be so burdensome when you're quite young to be seeing these films and being also being told by, you know, your father that these are important, great films that you must like almost. Yeah. He never insisted I would like them or anything. I, I could see how a, a child would take that on themselves, especially if a father is saying this is great and this is crap. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was never burdensome. It was quite uh, 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 pleasurable. And uh, for me, it was father and son. And my mom would be there and sometimes my sister and whatnot. And, and uh, you know, it was just uh, an enthusiasm shared with me for filmmaking itself and the mm-hmm. greats and, and stuff like that. But uh, um, my dad would never discourage, like, if I like the Goonies, you know, he wouldn't be like, oh, what are you going to see the Goonies for or something? You know, it's not sure. like that. Sure. Uh, so mm-hmm. Just highly encouraged to watch what was considered great and uh, groundbreaking cinema at the time. And then, but as far as interpreting it, I think it heavily influenced me uh, uh, and, and inspired me as a, as a youth and kind of opened up my eyes to something I wasn't fully capable of uh, um, uh, understanding and mm-hmm. uh, years later would go back and fully appreciate, um, not necessarily understand the message of what the film is trying to say always, because I'm still slow on a lot of things and have to watch things several times sometimes. But uh, no, I didn't feel like a burden. It was, it was more pleasurable. Good. Good. Yeah. Cause I, 
I guess dramatically, I think that's just a very interesting. It's it's so outside of my experience because you know my my family, my parents, they were physicists. They studied physics and they were very yeah. scientifically <laughs> minded and everything. But but they were also very artful. And I, I remember my mother would always you know she showed me the piano and she showed me like you know art like artistic films that had a sensibility to them that she could recognize. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm always I'm always fascinated by artist families in a way because. Because you you would want your children to sort of you know have the knowledge and to have the sort of enjoyment of what you love as well, but without telling them shoving what it to down think. their throat or something. Totally, totally. Yeah, because I've yeah. heard that before and, and, too, and that can be quite painful. Um, well, it's funny you say that because the the other thing was my father was a television writer, and you know most kids don't. Uh, I mean, he wrote films too, but he wrote a lot of television, and, and uh, uh, like most kids are told, like, you can only watch an hour of TV or two hours. But we were highly encouraged. I mean, I was woken. Again, I'd get woken up in the middle, you know, night, get up. you got to mm-hmm. see this. My, you know, this is on, and uh, this is hysterical, and this why this is funny. And, you know, it was, uh, it was almost I, – I, I kind of used to – I didn't do very well in school as a kid, and I used to say, like, well, it's my dad's fault, but it's, you know, what was he going to do, not let me watch TV? It's like how he makes a living. So Right, um, right. Who knows? Who knows? But all very enjoyable at the same time. Oh, cool. Well, very cool. Here, uh, the more the more we, whether it's email or phone or this conversation, the more uh, you reveal yourself, um, other than the obvious Hawaii, New York upbringing, um, it's really Hawaii. interesting. Like when you, what, what, well, I'm from Hawaii. Oh, yeah. And... Uh, so basically, it's so weird because the way you just explained that process was was how my father was. My father wanted to be a filmmaker, but my grandfather convinced him that he would never make it, so he never pursued it. So yeah. he he watches films like a filmmaker. Um, and in looking at your list here, um, I found it very interesting because Lee, uh, the other day when Quincy sent me his list, it was funny because there was like three or four things he put on his list that I had literally just watched the night before. Mm-hmm. And um, I had already seen them, but I, what I wanted to do, and of course, without being personal about uh, your relationships, Lee, but I wanted, I, I would like some form of a woman's point of view is that I've always been, uh, Quincy mentioned before sunrise and before sunset. And I remember I saw these in high school. So when we talk about films that we see them, they're good. They're great. They're the the actors had to carry the movies. The actors wrote Mm -hmm. the movies. Um, Mm -hmm. To a guy, a male, just speaking for myself, uh, you know, we take a bad rap for the, for the physical part, but for me, the the best experiences I've ever had have just been sitting up all night talking with a woman. And and I would love to walk around New York City the whole night talking to a woman or somewhere like Paris. So how does how is before sunrise and before sunset from the female point of view? Well, I mean, I think for the female point of view, from the male point of view, it's quite similar. You know, you always, 
I think it's about the kind of person you are. You know, if you're of the mind and of the spirit to enjoy and to appreciate a moment like that, I think that's why people respond to any film or any kind of story, right? Leo, if you can be the person to be the one walking around with a stranger in a strange city all night and talk about anything and everything and be open and be completely present, if you if that's something that you want and you can do, I think that's why you like a film like that. Um yeah. You know, and I and I think the conversations that happen in those films and those kinds of films and in those kinds of moments, you know, they there are always it's like a moment where you feel like the most present and the most alive. And I think for certain people, like we we hunger for those moments because everything else in our daily lives can be quite mundane and formulaic. So to capture that magic in the medium of film and present it to an audience, it's like it's like they're giving us that moment or they're giving us that drug and we're invited in for a little bit. I mean, from a female perspective, I mean, it's of course, it's a romantic situation. And we, as females and males, we bring our experiences on each side of that. But I, I can't say there's something specific that like a woman might experience from that uh, situation versus a male. So, yeah, especially well, yeah, with, yeah, uh, I've never been to Europe. Delphi co-wrote it. Yeah, so, yeah, they, they co-wrote it yeah, together. Yeah. I mean, right. Richard Linklater has settled. He said many times, you know, like he, he said this. Um, I think I saw him in Austin a couple years ago, and he was telling me about how little time they had to make both of those films, even the second one. So he would offer to basically pick up both Ethan and Julie from their hotels to set, and he would use that time in the car as precious rehearsal and rewriting time because they just didn't have the time to do that within the production yeah. schedule. You know, and that's the kind of that's the kind of I don't want. It's not trickery. It's not whatever. It's the basic care to put people together in the room and to know that whatever they make can only get better if they talk about it and form it together. And that's the kind of movie that they make. And that's why we love it so much because it feels like it's a natural conversation. And he's inviting Julie to co-write and inviting Julie to bring her experience as well as Ethan and as well as himself. Um, And he's always the guy that we point at when we think about sort of, you know, more, not holistic, but like a, a better way to make films almost, right? A more humanistic approach to filmmaking. And I think his work is incredible. You know, it's it's something that exists in a much more pure state than most things that we see. And I think it's because he cares about it and does what he does to, to include all the people into the process. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought, I thought but, sorry, go ahead, Quincy. Oh, no, I just said, yeah. Oh, I I thought Boyhood was, I think, uh, all of us has, um, has film buffs, film viewers, I think sometimes it's hard to take out what we know about the business. So Boyhood, for me, uh, felt like this with the way a rate would go up over that 10-year period or the way... I mean, God, God forbid, had one of those people won an Oscar, then it, you know, it would have been, you know. So there were so many business aspects of Boyhood 
that mm-hmm. alone made me just amazed that they pulled it off. I mean, never mind that they committed and they were into it. And but we all know in in Hollywood that that one Oscar or that one thing that does a hundred million dollars quickly gets the you know the agent manager wheel going. And no offense if you have agents or managers, but uh, I Boyhood I thought was just an amazing. I mean, to work out those transitions and um, since this is the, I feel we can uh, with Link later, then we can uh, pick another one. But uh, what what did you guys think of Boyhood? Uh, well, first of all, I think the the what in relation to what you were just saying from the business standpoint, uh, Ethan Hawke and and Patricia Arquette are both very dedicated artists first and foremost and they've both made a killing financially so they when they signed on to do it there was never a question that they were going to follow through with it it just mattered Mm -hmm. I think more what was interesting is that they stayed alive through the whole process and nobody got sick (laughs) or died or any randomness especially with the kids you never know what could happen to a kid but there's also you can't sign a contract for longer than seven years so there was no contract that made them have to do it every year. So it was really a handshake kind of thing. So he already knew going in and these people are pros that if they had wanted to, they're only shooting a week a year or something or two weeks a year, they could have manipulated around schedules and nobody was going to gouge for more money. They really wanted to be a part of this special thing. Um, But that's just from a business standpoint. So he was lucky to have these people so dedicated and on board from the beginning, but he, you know, he, he built those uh, relationships with these, wonderful artists. So they, they all trusted each other. Um, uh, and they trusted that Richard Linklater wasn't going to get bored in the middle and be like, eh, it's not working. Let's just dump it, you know? Um, totally. And I think really it was the investors that had to have the most faith in all of it. Cause mm-hmm. they're putting in $2 million or whatever. And uh, they know that they're never going to see that for 12 years at least. Um, so that's interesting. But uh, the, the film itself is a very interesting experience for me. It's um, I was not, wholly satisfied watching it uh, uh, like I am with many of his films when I saw it in the theater. Uh, I was a little, eh, was it a more gimmick thing? What, what was exciting? It's okay. It's fine. And I've seen it a few times since, and uh, I've caught it in piecemeal. And I, I think overall, like, its accomplishment was pretty spectacular. And I think there's individual elements that are amazing. Uh, Patricia's uh, performance and and uh, certain storylines with Ethan and uh, the kids and just how real that is. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's such an accomplishment. It's uh, overall, I guess, a pretty beautiful film. Uh, I wouldn't put it on the list of my favorites, but uh, it's definitely, a, you know, a spectacular achievement in filmmaking, I think. Okay, well, I have to say I grew up in Texas. Well, I went to middle yeah. school and high school in Texas. So for me, watching a film like that was like watching moments in my life. And I have a younger brother, too, who's the same age as um, the main character at the end yeah. of the, the story. So seeing the main character grow up and, you know, go to the Harry Potter thing and you know, had this relationship with himself and the parents and seeing all of that, it was not only my experience that I saw on screen, 
and those quiet moments of suburbia as well, you know, like that yeah. I really, really, really identify with. But it was also seeing my brother's experience too, because he grew up around the same timeline as the main character. And I, I had, I had a, like, I had a moment. The film took me out for a week because it reminded me of things that I'd forgotten about from my childhood, from my experience in growing up in Texas, and from my my own relationship to not only my family, but to my brother and the, the little sibling, the sibling story in the film too reminded me so much of, you know, my relationship to my brother and how it's changed throughout the years. And even just like the songs that were played in it, right. The the music that sometimes there was a band that oh, yeah. had a song that I forgot about and it, it happened to play in the film. And I'm like, Oh my God, that song that, or, or, you know, this thing. So, I mean, it's a very, it's a very biased sort of, not biased, but it's a very kind of personal reason why I love that film so much because it had oh, sure. so many similarities to my life. And I mean, that's why, that's why I think we love movies because, because it's so subjective and it's sometimes you like something just because, you know, it reminds you so much of your own experience or you can relate to something so closely, just like tree of life, right? Tree of life. I love it so much because it reminds me of my time growing up in Texas and it captures mm. something so quiet, but something so like poetic too about being bored <laughs> in the suburbs and having nothing to do and trying to make something out of nothing. Um, but you know, it's just this boyhood, obviously it's a story about a boy and all these things, but like for me, it's, I, it's, it's something that I, completely include myself in even though it's a story about you know a guy I so I think it's I think it's always just so wonderful to to, to know that films can you, you can watch a film about a person or a place that's completely out of you know your experience but still feel a real kinship to um, yeah yeah yeah, and I'll watch anything he makes I mean I'm a fan well, of life you know I think yeah I mean <laughs> yeah for me Link later was I saw uh, Days and Confused, I think, four times when it was in the theater, and I was only a freshman in high school, so I always relate to that freshman kid, and I was dating a sophomore girl at the time, so then that was kind of like, wow, the freshman kid's dating a sophomore girl. Um, I, uh, but what you what you had just mentioned about the tree of life and how different people relate was um, let's just say my my grandfather was of that generation where you could just smack your kids and mm-hmm. and you yeah. know be as much of a bully as you wanted and they couldn't call CPS and so I I watched that movie with my father because of course you know I have the kind of dad which uh, the way Quincy was talking about that that father son bond over television movies I'm I'm sure it doesn't I'm not saying it goes with you Quincy but I have that kind of movie bond with my dad where literally like if I see something before he does that he wants to see, like he'll actually like be mad at me for like six hours. And so (laughs) um, like literally won't talk to me. So um, when we watched tree of life, he, and there was all those scenes where Brad Pitt was smacking the kid around. And because my grandfather did that, like that movie ended and he's just like, what a piece of crap and blah, blah. And oh, God. we just kind of looked at him and we were like, well, 
it wasn't a piece of crap. Like you were just watching grand, grandpa beat you. Like, so that's like, wow. you're right. And that's what you took from it. But it was like, so yeah, like you're saying, like somebody might relate to this, a song, they might relate to a word, something might bring them back. Um, now that we've, that's cool that we got to jump into link later in Texas. Um, I would like to jump over to New York and uh, even though we had mentioned 70s, I think Woody Allen is, I don't know if he'll go down in history as the only filmmaker who's reinvented himself every 10 years for going on 60 years or 55 and a half years. Um, Every time you think you see that one little tiny thing that wasn't up to par. Midnight Paris comes out of nowhere. From Rome with Love comes out of nowhere. I highly recommend his new one, Irrational Man with Joaquin Phoenix. Um, But uh, Woody Allen, um, Lee mentioned Manhattan in Tears and Annie Hall, which that's interesting, Lee, because those are my favorite. Uh, Quincy mentioned uh, Woody Allen films oh, in I mentioned general. all three of those. Yeah, I mean, those oh, three okay, the yeah, 70s, of course, obviously. The, yeah, you, oh, yeah, okay, so here's what I'd love to know. Because we all mentioned them, I would love to, let's say, pick Manhattan and Quincy, other than the obvious Gordon Willis cinematography, not to take from your answer, but just um, what what about Manhattan puts it in that top three or four out of 60 some odd films? Well, I won't agree to any top three or four out of 60 uh, because there's, <laughs> I have the re, like, I think Lee, Lee uh, made a little, I think you probably had a little like, Whoa, when I, I think you saw my list. I wrote, I can't constrict lists uh, about films. It's like when somebody asks you, what's your favorite? Some people are able to go, that's my favorite. I can't do it. I couldn't even put together a top 500 because I'd be worried about what's 501 and why is I'm it not in laughing the top at you. I'm laughing because I answered oh, no, the no. same way. I'm sorry, I, no, no, I, I know, I know, I know. And uh, with Woody, the the thing is, I have a familial relation to him, and uh, you know, my father wrote with him, and my dad wrote bananas and take money and run and what's a no tiger lily. Way. So I, I, that's I'm biased. fantastic. Oh. Oh yeah. Thank That's you. And incredible. I mean, I didn't write it, but wow. yeah, really great. <laughs> and uh, so he, so I, I have like a personal connection as well as a film, uh, like cinematic connection. And then because of how I was raised and related and all these things, I was raised within an environment like that. So the films speak to me on a multitude of levels, but uh, I, so those three films, yeah, they're on my favorites of what I, I I have I like a lot of his films. I even think there's a handful of films that get quite easily dismissed that people just don't pay attention mm-hmm. to when they make yeah. outlandish mm-hmm. comedy. Like he hasn't made a good film in 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Right. But they'll go into like you hear quite often when somebody wants to try to dismiss Woody of recent, they never dismiss his earlier stuff. But when somebody's kind of like sick of him now or something, they'll go. And he hasn't really made a good film since what the mid '90s or something, you know, like after. And the truth is, that's not quite true. If you're 
you know. Well, that's a very reductive to, statement it, anyway. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So I, I won't reduce to just three, but since you said the 70s, and I could have included bananas in it because, uh, my, you know, it's just a film I obviously I love bananas. watching. Yeah. Uh, bananas. Staring at a poster. Sure, yeah. But, um, yeah. Oh, you have a banana. Of course you have a banana. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, this isn't bragging, but I, I I have the one that was in the uh, movie theater when it opened on, uh, I think, on 68. Uh, but, oh, man. Uh, but so the, the you know, so for me, but aside, putting that all aside, uh, what, what was so great about Manhattan? See, Manhattan's another one of those films that I watched probably when I was three, you know, and then four and then saw it again when I was 10 and and when I was 14 and 17 and then 20 and 25 and 30, you know, continually watch it. I've probably seen it over, I've definitely seen it over a hundred times. Uh, I would yeah. I would say probably closer to 200, if, if not more, uh, if that's possible. There's a few of his films that I've had that experience with, but Manhattan's great yeah. for so many reasons. I mean, it's, uh, uh, and then ironically, it's one of the ones he hated the most when he was done. So, you know, <laughs> that's, that's just a whole other story but yeah interrelate the relationships the you know the the subtle nuanced you know it it was really establishing his thing there you know that uh that whole um it it, it, it's interesting because sometimes you could if you remove yourself from it and you don't pay attention you could think oh these films aren't really about anything ever but they're about everything and, uh, about everything, uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and what I find so interesting about a, a Woody Allen film, starting with, I think, Annie Hall uh, and moving forward, is that within like seven minutes of any Woody film, you know so much about everything that's going to happen, about the characters in the film, about the surrounding people. And then by an hour and a half later, because most of his films are around an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes, uh, it, it, you've gotten so much information that you kind of feel like you've spent whatever amount of time the film takes place in. So if the film takes place in five years, you feel like you were with these people for five years, yet you don't feel like you were bored sitting there for five years going, fuck, why isn't, oh, excuse me, shoot, why isn't this? No, over? no, there's no censorship, think, feel free, go ahead. Oh, but you Woo. think to yourself, you know, <laughs> in that case, fuck, uh, and, you know, uh, but you know, you think to yourself, "Wow, I just got so much information." And yeah. if you if you try to go and write a scene like a scene he has written, it, you, it's very challenging to to come up with that much information and also not just talk about what's happening and talk about other things yet move the story forward. And I don't know; it's very hard to explain what he does. Um, but, I think uh, that's, that's that's probably the most eloquent and the most like together description I've sort of heard of why his films are so wonderful because I, I my birthday was last week and for some reason Happy I was birthday. like you know what thank you <laughs> thank you um but for some reason I was like I want to watch Manhattan like I, I really just want to watch Manhattan right now and it's yeah. it's almost like you miss those people in your life like you miss an old friend or you you miss like you miss that presence of something that's and for his films especially Time and again, I feel like I, I put them on or I watch them again just because I want to be close to it again, or just because I want to spend that time with those people and that film again. You know, it's absolutely it's a very it's such a personal thing. It's such a you know we have a real 
connection to that piece of art and those people within it. Cause it reminds you so much, you know, of, you know, what of yourself, of your friends and real life sort of scenarios and, and the relationships in every single one of his films when it comes to romantic or family or whatnot, like that's, that's the stuff and the way that he presents it. Like that's the stuff that I connect with very much just as a human being. Um, and what's great about Manhattan too, on top of all of that, it's, it's the romance, right? Yeah. It's like, it's this black and white, beautiful, you know, Prince of Darkness lens, you know, like fairy tale almost. Um, and just to be in like that restaurant and to hear the sounds and to see four people talking over you know, a glass of wine or that, you know, the, the image that everyone goes to in that film with the two of them sitting, you know, watching the sunrise over the bridge. It's it's like, yeah. you want those, you right. want those moments for yourself almost like so, so much that when you watch a film like this, sometimes you come back to it because you just want to be close to that again. And that's just one of the, that's definitely one of those films that, that never seems to lose its magic. And, you know, I don't think I've seen any film more than, I think out of everything that I've seen, I've probably seen Annie Hall the most. And I, I almost need to take breaks, like years of breaks before seeing it again. Cause I think I, at a certain point, I probably saw it too many times in too short amount Mm -hmm. of time. And it, it began to like dilute itself. Um, but with Manhattan, I think I've been good to sort of whenever I see it on television, wherever I put it on, it's it's just as much of a punch that as it was the first time I saw it. Um, well, that, that all, opening you know, obviously is so great, but um, yeah, I think I think uh, I mean like, and I agree, Quincy, the way you explained that um, uh, made me want to say, oh, thank you for joining us with Talking Pictures. No, I'm just kidding. Um, that was so well put. Um, uh, I, I I definitely agree with you that um, the I probably have 25 favorite Woody Allen films, um, but something that uh, when we talk about 70s, the reason why Interiors always slips in that list was because um, I'm sure much how you got to see them in order, especially with a familiar connection, or maybe you missed one because you were busy. And then, but I I had the good fortune to um, also see probably 75 or 80 percent of them in order because my grandma said, get take the money and run, then get bananas, then get love and death, then you know whatever the order is. And so I was going through all those uh, that I know he's a comedian and respectfully, you know, those are known as his, his, his gag films or his joke films. And then all of a sudden I watched Annie Hall and I was like, you know, how is a guy who's capable of such great jokes and these like everything you always wanted to know about sex. I mean, Gene Wilder drinking wool light and, Mm -hmm. and, um, (laughs) And the sperm say right. they don't want to go out because they heard there's a rubber wall that kills them. I mean, to me, when you're 19, that's just like the funniest thing you've ever heard. So when I yeah. hit Annie Hall and it was like this, how men and women relate. And of course, at 19, you don't understand. Um, I'm 38. I still don't understand. Um, and 
So that kind of like blew me away. And then I got to go on to Manhattan and then I went into Hannah and her sisters. And oddly, as we're mm-hmm. talking about Woody, I've been sitting here looking at my collection thinking, why do I only own Annie Hall, Hollywood ending and Hannah and her sisters? And I don't, <laughs> I, I, I cannot understand why I don't own celebrity or uh, Melinda and Melinda, which I think is, um, if I had to, like, if I was forced to pick one of his best films, just from a creativity and writing standpoint, the idea of making a movie a comedy and a drama and having the characters live the different movie, um, I, I didn't even know it could be done. I mean, mm-hmm. not even Woody. I thought, I read the box, I go okay, something's going to slip up here. And it was just brilliant. I mean, talk about being overlooked for a screenplay nomination or even just for pure creative reasons being, yeah. you know, more hailed. I mean, what, 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 what's your guys' take on Melinda, Melinda? Uh, I'm actually in Melinda, Melinda. Um, but, uh, <laughs> oh, I, I, wow. Uh, I do a little I didn't know that. With, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. Oh, no, no, that's fine. I, I do a little, it's, you wouldn't, I mean, unless you knew who I was, you probably wouldn't pay attention. But I have a tiny little scene with Amanda Peet. Um, and um, uh, um, so it, it's and where she plays like a, uh, I think she's playing like an AD or something, and I play a second mm-hmm. AD. Um, oh, I remember so, that scene, yeah. Yeah, and we're at like a wall, and there's a, a, a an actress by the name of Katie Chrysler. I think her married name is Katie Chrysler Black, I believe. And uh, uh, there's like a film within the film being filmed, and right. Katie's the director, so she goes cut, and then Amanda P talks to her, and then I talk to Amanda. I like say, "We're gonna go get pizza or something. Do you want to join?" Right. Them? She quickly says, "No," and that's <laughs> the end of my career in Woody Allen movies. Uh, yeah, that's the, my career. <laughs> It's, it's the, the film, I mean, I was on a bench in, in whatever works because I happened to be in town and, and my dad was talking to him and so he said, yeah, stop by or whatever. We'll, we'll stick him next to, you know, somebody or something. But that's oh, whatever. the Larry David movie. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the, with this film, I don't know. This is a tricky film because I have friends who, like, adored it and much more than I did. And uh, I, I enjoyed what he was striving for. I, I don't know that yeah. he fully got his, his view, like what he was trying to do across. I don't know if it had to do with casting or execution. Right. I have no idea. I, I know when you make a film a year, it's very difficult to have each one be an out-of-the-ballpark experience. But what I find interesting more than my personal opinion of this film or any other film, uh, with the subjectivity being so important in, in any art, is, is that there's so many people I know that tell me how much they love this film. And that wasn't my exact experience. I was very proud and happy to be a part of it and so blown away and all that stuff. And I loved a lot of it. And, and, uh, and mm-hmm. my experience was fantastic. Uh, it's not definitely, it's, it's not in my top whatever of his, you know, if I had to, mm-hmm. but it, it's not the bottom either. So, uh, right. you know, but, but yeah, uh, in- interesting idea for sure. Um, I, I think it would have been maybe more interesting, and, and this is just me, and this is really arrogant to say or something, because it's all hindsight, and, and Jesus, I didn't even write the thing. So, and, and if I only could write this well or something. But 
you know, I, I think it might have been interesting to see if the script was exactly the same for the for the um, comedy and the drama, the same exact words, just mm-hmm, different mm-hmm. casts. And then so one's played as a drama with the same exact words and one's played. I don't know. I'm just, just thinking hindsight. Oh, yeah. that is interesting. Uh, but I don't you know. You know, I, I think I, what you said is this is what I love about him as a filmmaker. He is not afraid because he's able to make a film every year he can take a very conceptual thing and throw it against the wall and see what sticks. And this mm-hmm. is one of those films where I feel, I mean, we like it because, you know, we're in the realm of film and making, making film. And that's interesting to us already. Um, yeah. But what I love about his work and his pro- prolific nature is that he's willing to just let things try things, see what works. And yeah. That's a that's an artistic freedom that is only sort of licensed to very particular people, and yeah. he's been able to make a career where he's able to do those things. I mean, you, you, we all know, like making a film is years of our lives, you know, on on average for the average filmmaker, and we don't have that immediacy of any kind of other art form. If you're a musician, you write a song, you perform it, you have an immediate response, right? If you're yeah. a painter or whatever there's a much more immediate reaction to whatever you make and how it, how other people might respond to it. So there's something in the, there's something in the conceptual nature of what we we try to achieve sometimes that can be diluted or lost just because it takes a lot of time to make a film. Um, And for Woody, for Woody, like he has this, it's almost like watching an experiment, like having a person just say, Oh, this is an idea that I had. And, Let's see if we can make this work. And and I think all all of the best moments that I love in his films have been those moments of extreme like experimentation almost because I I see it and I really value what he's trying yeah. to do. Um, yeah, which is why I, interiors is so interesting. Absolutely, absolutely. Sorry, I didn't it, mean to cut you off. But it just gave me that thought. Yeah, yeah sorry. About that. Sure. I mean, and of course, of course, he worships you know worships Bergman and wanted to touched that a little bit with his own stuff and wanted to make something that was completely just serious for a second to get in touch with his, I'm totally speaking for him, which is totally bullshit, but, you know, just trying to, to get, get, get a darker color in for one, one whole film. Um, and I love interiors love and interiors. I also like and also my, like, favorite, my favorite, are you guys hearing Paul, a little back? Hear Paul? Also? Okay. Yes, I'm here. Paul, is that you? Okay. Um, a film that I love that not a lot, I feel not a lot of people talk about of his is Purple Rose of Cairo. Um, yeah, spectacular film. That is, that is a film that I just, it's, it's almost so innocent that it's so, so beautiful. Like this is why we love movies and we've all thought of, you know, sitting in the audience side of things, like what would happen if we just walked into that screen or someone walked yeah. out of that screen. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's something yeah. so pure about that. There's something so pure, almost like in, like childlike about that. And that film, it really, it really, I, I think about my top whatever films of his, and that that is definitely one of the one of them because I think it captures something so magical about about film and how we relate Absolutely. to film. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, and, and Mia Farrow is phenomenal in that and there's a this Danny Aiello plays such a brute in there I mean it's really mm-hmm. it's uh, hard to watch at times uh, he's so yeah. good at being abusive um, and of yeah. course Jeff Daniels is 
obviously uh, great. Um, mm-hmm. What an interesting film. Yeah, just a dreamer's film. Like, you know, like, what if, you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah. back to yeah. interiors, I, I didn't want to skip over interiors, but it's, oh, it's all about relationships and it's all about what dominance too, you know, you're talking with about a, a cast of, of of spectacular women, all with their own strengths and weaknesses, and the sort of patriarch of the family, and this new woman that comes in. It just it just says so much about it says so much about everything, and will and will continue to say that for the end of time. <laughs> it seems, you know, that stuff is never going to sort of be resolved or go away ever. Um, yeah. The relationship between siblings, men and women, dominance and submissiveness—it's—it's—it's it's, it's all in there. What, so, what do you guys think about? Because it gave me a—I mean, everything has duality. Um, what do you guys think about the fact of, like you said, uh, for us, it takes 18 months, two years of our life, sometimes three. Uh, how do you feel that maybe that that he can do one every year a brings out a genius like midnight in paris because he has to do it so quick and then on the flip side could bring out something that just as woody allen fans we walk out going like he recently made a movie called uh, magic in the moonlight and i love emma stone but I just, I couldn't even finish it. And so it made me think, well, is this that it was a bad script and poorly made? Or was this because he has eight months to write it, shoot it, edit it, deliver it, get it in theaters? Like, could you see where it could lend to both the, I mean, who who could really make a film as good as Celebrity in a year? But then also, anybody can make a dud in a year. Sure. I mean, mean, it's subjective, of course. But the the interesting thing I find about, uh, you mentioned Magic in the Moonlight. When I saw Magic in the Moonlight in the theaters, see, part of the thing about watching a Woody Allen film in the theater is you're expecting a comedy or something of comedic element. And when you go into a theater and the whole theater is silent the whole time, like in Midnight in Paris, people are laughing all the time. So it's like you yeah. know, it's a comedy and we're laughing. It's enjoyable and it's contagious. But when you walk into a movie like Magic in the Moonlight and it doesn't get the laughs and there's maybe one or two people who are almost, it feels, uh, forcefully laughing because they maybe think they understand something greater than everybody else or maybe they do. Uh, but the experience as a film goer can sometimes be like let down. Uh, it's hard. You have to let go of your expectations with everything, especially people we have the ability to expect something great from because of their track record. But right. what I found personally interesting just in general is when I see a film in the theater or anywhere and the first time eh, don't really love it, think it's okay. And then one day it usually happens when I can't sleep and it's three in the morning, and I think, ugh, I just got to go to sleep. And then, like, I'm flipping through cable, and it happens to be on, that movie I didn't enjoy. And sometimes it, my whole opinion changes overnight on that film, and sometimes it doesn't. 
in the case of Magic in the Moonlight, when I watched it the second time under no surveillance of an audience, so I was by myself and could just mm-hmm. enjoy and watch the film from a critical standpoint, not and having seen it already, so I wasn't anticipating what's going to be, what's it going to be, and what's, am I going to enjoy it? Like, I was able to break it down and watch it. What I realized was that film is not a comedy. As many jokes that are in it, it is a very dark, dark film. And if you watch it from a standpoint of a drama, I actually thought it was quite brilliant. But the first time I saw it as a comedy, in my mind, it, it wasn't mm-hmm. that funny. And, and it's interesting to me. I was just, I was just rewatching it. Um, uh, but yeah, that it didn't, it didn't do particularly great. Uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. There was another film of his that I, I had to rewatch the second time. You will meet a tall, dark stranger. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I watched it the second time, the first time I was so thrown off. Who are these actors? I don't even really recognize anybody. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Obviously mm-hmm. I recognize Naomi Watts and, and Brolin. But I was like, what's right. going on here? There's a very English film going on here. And when I was able to remove myself from that and just watch the film, I was like, wow, this is a, this is a dark film. This is a, like a, this is a person who's aware that death is looming constantly and there's no <laughs> escape, not even in art. You know, it's like, it's, there you go. And uh, uh, I don't know. It's just, it's, there's something quite brilliant about some of these films uh, when, you, when you realize that, you know, um, yeah, I think even Woody said that he had to watch 2001 Space Odyssey five times or something. I, maybe I'm making that up, but before he understood what was going on in the film and like to appreciate it, like he didn't like yeah. it the first time, and he went back four or five times because everybody was so crazy about it. And that's a film for me that I I don't quite get 2001. Like I understand what they're saying. Maybe I don't. I, it's not my film. I can appreciate how beautiful it is and all that stuff. But to me, it mm-hmm. kind of just, it's like, ah, I can't watch it again. But I try to watch it every year because I'm trying to catch up to the artist, you know, uh, uh, especially somebody as brilliant as a Kubrick or a Woody or somebody like this who makes a lot of films is considered mm-hmm. a genius. And I, I often think it's sometimes my responsibility as a filmmaker to catch up to him uh, but not the audience's responsibility to catch up just in general, you know, but that's totally anyway. true because he, th- this is the, this is the guy who will not stay on set for five more minutes because there's a next game on because he has a life, yeah. you know, and there's something that is so <laughs> right, <Woody. laughs> great about that. It's great. No, cause, cause we sometimes take things so seriously so much so that we forget about real life as makers. Yeah. Right. And I really respect that he's like, uh, no, it's fine. I'm, it's, I, I got to go home and watch the basketball game where I got to go because I'm, I'm playing clarinet or whatever, you know, at the club yeah. later. And I think there's so much to be learned from a person who that has been doing this for so long to get to that point in his own life to say, ah, it's just a movie. You know, life is more important. Because sometimes when you're making films or making art, it's the other way around. Somehow you exist more importantly, in this other universe of art, of creation, that you, for, you neglect, you know, your real life and the real people in your life. So I think it's great. He's just like, you don't like it? Fuck it, whatever. I tried something. I'm happy with it. You take it or leave it. And there's that kind of, like, letting go that I, I, that I definitely want to sort of achieve in my own life, too, where, you know, you try something, it sticks, great. If it doesn't, eh, it's okay. I'll make another film. It's fine. But I'm happy, you know, 
I'm the person that goes home and gets to be happy with my life. Um, you know, the viewer can sort of take the film as it is, and and if they like it, great. If not, it's cool. I'm good. You know, it's very, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he has that. Very, he has that in that famous saying I saw in an interview once, um, where he, uh, it's what you're saying about the life, but uh, like you, know, like that saying of his. If the critics like it, then I know I did a bad job. And then also I heard him once say, and it might have been taken out of context by the interviewer, the way they edited it, but when in reference to that next game thing, um, don't get me wrong, he's a dedicated filmmaker, loves films, but, and again, it could have been totally out of context, um, but there was something said about like, them like, are like the hobby and the job that pays the bills. Like he can go without being in a production meeting or he can deal with being in Paris for a while at like, you know, the way, as you know, Quincy in New York and, you know, I don't know how New York is, so I can't comment on it. I've only been there twice, but uh, Lee, the way you and I know out here where it's like, you know, if you're not in a production meeting, you know, you got nothing going on. I mean, you could have 15 projects, but because you weren't in three production meetings today, uh, you know, what are you doing with your life? So, um, I think for, uh, I mean, if, if we could put ourselves in that spot, if, if we thought that no matter what we did still got us, another quote I heard from him was he doesn't, and please Quincy, if you know about this, I'm not asking personally, but if you know, has a purpose of this show, I, I also heard him say once where he tells inv- investors don't read the script and he just tells them. I'll cast the best people I can and make the best movie I can. And yeah, I mean, he just has that yeah, general deal. It's a, you give him money and he'll make you a film and he'll keep it around budget and it'll make its money. Yeah, back. So, you know, so if, no, you have, if we were to put us in that situation, Lee, if tomorrow I was to say, okay, you can make a film. I don't even get to know who's in it. I don't get to read the script you might win five Oscars under my investment, or you might make something people walk out of, or, you know, Quincy for the next 50 years, I'm going to fund your films. Or even if someone came to me and said, Hey, I don't care if you have one listener, your podcast is funded for the next three decades. It's got to be a really interesting way of making films. Uh, it is. But he, he earned that process. right. He no, earned no, that right for making films since... You know, what I, you know what I mean? Like, he, oh, he's, no, no, he's, not, fucking, he's fucking no, Woody not, Allen, you know? Yeah, no, I'm not alluding <laughs> to that he didn't earn it. What I'm saying is, is because he's so private and he doesn't do many interviews, I would love mm-hmm. to know what that feeling is like. I, 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 I do not allude to or say he didn't earn it. I'm just saying yeah, it, yeah. Mu- it must be interesting as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, you know what? I can let this, sh- this shot be a minute shorter because I'm not going to lose my, like, I'm just saying the tiniest things that even if he earned, I mean, there's like, there's so many examples. I mean, okay. On the acting side, I feel Pacino's earned certain things, but he still has to show up at call time. 
and he still has to, so it's like, I'm not saying Woody doesn't show up at call time, but I'm just saying for us to imagine in our world, if we knew that regardless of how our movies came out, that just must be interesting for a filmmaker. Completely uh, earned, but I wonder what it's like. I can, I can only speak for myself, obviously. Uh, I've made two feature films now. I'm about to make my third. All three... Uh, with my own investing. So I have zero responsibility to anybody. And I especially don't have a responsibility to an audience. And I, I never would consider an audience while making a film. I mean, it's just, you, you can't make your film that way. Uh, if you're, you know, you, you might have to, if somebody else comes along and goes, here's $10 million, you better make sure the audience likes it. And we're going to test screen it and take notes and you're going to adjust it and all of that stuff. But, as a purely, uh, you know, like in control filmmaker with the, and I've only, my films have been, you know, low budget and, and very small. And, and, you know, uh, so I've had total control and, and there's a positive and a negative to it. There's a total satisfaction and freedom in it. Uh, and ultimately having total power and just being like, no, I'm not changing that because I don't care. Like, this is how it has to be in my heart. It has to be that way. But there's also uh, a detriment to that, too, that can happen where, you know, you might not get the audience that you would hope your film mm-hmm. would get for its own life to keep itself going. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not that mm-hmm. you want the audience to like you, like the film, because you want to feel liked. It's that for any hope that some investor is going to come along and go, that guy made a film for no money and it made lots of money. Maybe we could give him a lot of money and make even more. Uh, right. you know, there's a, there's a point where you have to be obviously collaborative. And, and by the way, in this doing, I have been very collaborative at times it, it, and the production itself is collaboration. Uh, and I listen to notes from my co-producers, et cetera, and editors and all that stuff. But what I mean is ultimately I make that final decision and, um, uh, above and beyond just final cut, like from anything from casting to, you know, where we're going to shoot or what we're going to shoot or how the script, the final script, if it's totally done yeah. and stuff. But I've also yeah. made bad decisions listening to other people and regretted those decisions. And, and not trusting your instincts. Yeah, not trusting your instincts. And so it's interesting because then you're very much put in the spot of, you know, uh, for me personally, if a film's going to fail – nobody ever points to the DP and says the film failed to the DP or the, they don't even really point to the actor. I think maybe on major scale films where Tom Cruise is the big guy in this film, if it doesn't fail, it's on his shoulders. I mean, if it fails, it's on his shoulders, but Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. most of the time people go like, ugh, that film was crap. The director doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, And you know, you don't know why that director was there and maybe the director does or doesn't know what they were doing. Um, but if if I'm gonna fail, I guess what I'm saying is I want it. If I'm if I'm gonna get the responsibility, I want to be the reason it failed, um, right? Uh, or succeeded. You know, it's both both ways. But yeah, I, I I don't I don't know. How is it for you, Lee? I mean, I I don't really make decisions based on what I think an audience will like or not like. I just try to put my best foot forward with what I think I would want to see or how I'm trying to express this view, and then yeah. hope for the best. You know. It's always what I think to be the most truthful in the moment, you know, what's, what's most immediate and what works most for me. Cause 
I mean, I know at this point I'm going to make films for people that are alike with me in some kind of way, shape or mm-hmm. form, you know? And I, that's the kind of filmmaker that, that's the only kind of filmmaker that I think I can be. Um, I'm definitely, I mean, some people are more of a plug and play director, director for hire. They can go do an episode of this and then do an episode of that. And that's fine. And that's within my capability as well. But for my films, for my feature films and narrative work, I feel like I, I cannot do a film that is outside of who I am and creatively make a choice that is something that is not of me. You know, when people see my film or my work, the biggest compliment that I've gotten was like, oh, I felt you in every moment of that. And that to me is is just like all I want to achieve with anything ever. (laughs) You know, you, you want your work to not only represent you, but to also represent like a truth that you hope to convey in the emotion of the scene or the scenario that you're presenting. Um, and this was, there is a new world summer is my first feature and all of the moments that I think work the best for audiences and myself are the moments that I felt were the most pure of intent and were the most clear and were the most were the scenes and the moments where I felt what I envisioned and I had wanted completely came on screen. Um, and the moments during production, just the production side and, and the moments where I felt like didn't work as well as, well as they should have, were the moments where I didn't trust my own instincts about certain situations. Yeah. Um, and I'm, oh, I'm speaking uh, to Lee, that yeah. unselfishly. Mm-hmm. I'm fine, by the way. I'm, I'm so sorry, sorry to cut you it. off, but... Um... You had mentioned me to let you know about the eleven ten a.m. Yeah, I can probably stay on for another fifteen. Is that okay, you guys? Oh, okay, cool. I I, I totally didn't hey, mean yeah. to interrupt you. I just discussed no, that. No, no, no. Yeah, all good. All yeah. good. Um, Continue so, on. I mean, so my second, I got a, I have a second feature lined up in the spring, and it's a very interesting situation because it's a it's a script that I didn't write, and it's. I'm I'm not completely a plug and play director, but initially they were looking for a plug and play director, but then I had my own notes on the script. I met with the writer, meeting the producers and everything. And I basically told them, Look, guys, if you can't give me the script for a rewrite or a polish and getting it to a point where I feel like it's the most strong, then I'm just not the the director you're looking for. And yeah. they're like, oh, my God. They're just like, oh, my God, totally take it. Take it. Do do what you can with it. Because it's all about explaining what you can do and to elevate something. And also for them to realize I'm just – I'm not a I'm not that kind of director. I can't just go in there and become the person you want me to be. I'm going to come in with a whole truckload of my own thoughts and feelings to make this thing better. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think it's some, it's, that's a kind of thing that filmmakers need to realize for themselves. Like, what kind of a filmmaker am I going to be? Am I going to walk the long road and be my own person, but maybe not make a lot of material because I want, I'm very specific? Or am I the person who just loves to work and do different kinds of material and become that ambidextrous sort of, you know, person? Um so I think it's, yeah, now as, you know, more more people are making films, it's never been easier to make a film, which also means there's 
a whole vast array of experience and intention behind why people want to make films and people that do actually make these these films. I think it's more more people have bec- are becoming specific film filmmakers and also attracting and growing their own audiences because people want that specificity. They want to see a viewpoint and they want to have they want to be a fan of someone who is very you know individual in their work and voice. So I'm I'm, I'm really excited you know to to see so much great work come out and for us as filmmakers to build our own audience and say hey, I'm going to put something out. If you like it, great, join the tribe. But I'm not going to go and try to, you know, pull like a Tom Cruise fan to come see my little art film because that just doesn't make sense. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's how I feel. <laughs> well, on, well, on this note, I just have to do a quick uh, talking pictures thing. Um, of course, the content of the show uh, was... Uh, not promo, but we do have to mention uh, this week's episode. Tomorrow, uh, we will be having a review of Rainey Kerwin's The Wedding Invitation, who yes. I believe she's six for six awards now. This, this she film is, is awesome. Being... The film is amazing, and she yeah, deserves every film. bit of success that she gets. Oh, my gosh. Everybody on the planet has seen this but me. I hear every week someone <laughs> new tells me to see it. I'm going to be interviewing her, and I haven't seen the film. So we had to bring in someone to review the film. And I've and already just in dealing with her. She's so gracious and so kind. Um, and so she'll be on tomorrow with a review of her film. And then Thursday, we will have... Uh, a guest that will be talking to us about the Toronto International Film Festival or pending scheduling. We will have, I hate saying the word special guest because all guests are special to me, but I use that word as a marketing term. So we'll have a special guest that we're waiting on schedules. So with that, and thank you guys for mentioning Rainey because um, now I feel even more left out. Um, and uh, oh, that, I'm that film, that film will come out and it'll rock the planet. I have no doubt in my mind that that film will find a big, wonderful audience. Oh yeah, well, I mean, she told me um, we're doing press stuff in February, and I went and I said, this was a while back. I said it's August. <laughs> I was like, I really have less interest in the next Star Wars movie than this. Like, I'm not. I'm that into this. I, I, let's, you know, I just hope that the hype doesn't ever kill, but I know I'll like it. So that was our mm-hmm. talking pictures. Uh, we had to mention our guests. Um, you had uh, mentioned some great things that you uh, took for your uh, process. Um, what I'd like to do is, as you guys both mentioned some films and some directors, this is what I love about film. You can never know everything, and I wait. I roll out of bed every day thinking I know nothing so I can be open to learning 10 things. So um, uh, Quincy had mentioned um, a lot of these true independent filmmakers, and Lee, you had mentioned a few French New Wave guys that are obviously known, but their films are hard to find. So... Uh, Quincy, if you would like to 
however you want to mention it. I mean, I know a lot of people know Jim Jarmusch and, of course, Linklater, um, but a lot of these other names that you mentioned, if you'd like to throw out some films so our listeners could write them down or if you'd like to mention a director or two that mean a lot to you in this independent filmmaker, uh, real DIY filmmakers, please feel free. Well, there was like a... Uh, and by the way, I I saw who uh, Lee was talking about. And I think those are all. I mean, I, I, all the French New Wave and the true, like the Agnes Veritas and the Chantal Ackerman mm-hmm. and all those people are just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Especially with what we were just mm-hmm. talking about about following your true vision and finding mm-hmm. an audience by that way. And then these kind of people are like that. I'm mentioning to you is just something that's very passionate uh, that I'm very passionate about. Because as an independent filmmaker, uh, you know, I think the most common thing uh, in this environment that I find myself doing is writing hashtag support independent film or support indie film. Because uh, there's a group of filmmakers that came out uh, about 10, 15 years ago, and uh, they were kind of labeled something called mumblecore. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. but there's a very particular filmmaker named Andrew Bujalski, who just a real, really insightful and interesting uh, uh, guy. And uh, I don't know him personally. I just know his films, and I've watched his interviews and studied his work. And uh, uh, he had a film called Mutual Appreciation. And I was uh, I mentioned this particular film because there's a whole number of these these people. Uh, Mm-hmm. Bradley Russ Gray to, you know, even Lena Dunham is on that list and, and, uh, uh, Lynn Shelton Duplass brothers. Yeah. Duplass mm-hmm. brothers and Greta Gerwig and Joe Swanberg and all, all, all these mm-hmm. people. Uh, there's a guy named Lawrence Michael. Joe Dean. Swanberg, the king of them all. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and, and, yeah. and the thing about mutual appreciation was, and they all know each other, these people, and they all work together and they all encourage right. each other. And they kind of were like a modern movement, a contemporary okay. movement of, the 70s tour era where they were just like kids kind of coming out of college and somewhat, somewhat in college. And they were just like, we all want to make movies. Let's just make movies. Like we care about story and, and actor and substance more than we worry about moving it along. Come on, move it along. So they'll have these very right. long, almost Cassavetian uh, scenes where it, it could be a 10, 15 minute scene of somebody sitting on a curb crying. But uh, my point is this, film mutual appreciation i saw it in the theater in an art house theater in los angeles where i was living at the time called the lemley's which is a wonderful theater if you're in los angeles there's a bunch Mm -hmm. of them and they play art house cinema and uh and i remember thinking to myself i was i was i was starting to get into making my own films and trying to raise money and trying to do things and i remember watching this film thinking wow this film is in a theater right now and I'm watching it and I don't think most people know what it is and probably haven't even heard of it when I mention it. And I was just like blown away by this guy. And I had to go home and look up who this kid was. And it was, you know, he's, yeah. he's younger than I and, and he's more motivated and he's more handy and useful. You know, he like got his yeah. new friends and he shot it on 16 millimeter, I think. And, and I was just thinking, well, he wrote it, he directed it, he's in it. It's like, I was so, Envious and not jealous, but like excited and uh, like inspired to like, you know what? I can make my film. I don't have to wait for four hundred thousand dollars or five million dollars. I can make my film, and um, 
you know, getting to make my first film, Miles to Go, and and then even Friends of and Friends, but Miles to Go, which is very much could be clearly drawn to that watching mutual appreciation to, and then following a lot of those people's films, the Swanbergs, the this and that, and seeing, uh, you know, uh, breaking up words and tiny furniture and going, you know what? I can, I got to make my film. There's no more way. Absolutely. How much money can I put together? 20 grand. Yeah. Great. That's enough. And going out and yeah, getting the, the film. And... Yeah. You know, I sorry, mean, I the saw... are great. Thank you for mentioning those Quincy because the Lemley theaters, if you want to see a non hundred million dollar movie, if you don't want Iron Man crushing the main character, Support those. I think it's on Beverly Drive or up near the Beverly Center. Um, There's a couple. There's a couple. There's a yeah. lot of them. There's like six yeah. of them. Oh, okay. I saw the premiere of Hannah Takes the Stairs at, at yeah. uh, South by Southwest, I think 2006 or seven. I forget. Um, yeah. But that's told, like I was in college at the time. So I, seeing those films being made and seeing like, you know, that whole class of people just be fearless and make them films and also see great examples like hit like his work and also see not so great examples. It, both sides of it really inspired me to just go out there and do it. And I think that's the best, that's the best feeling one can have when you see a film is because, you know, if you feel like it's within your realm of possibility, it's, it's, it'll be great. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, and yeah, like what he did, like Funny Ha Ha. I think that was another one that I saw of his. Yeah, that's um, Kajowski. Yeah, yeah, but there was also some. I think Beeswax, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I didn't, I haven't seen, but I know that one. Um, but there's great examples of that, like you know, Puffy Chair. Of course, you're just like, wow, that's incredible. And then there's yeah. the other side of Mumblecore, which is what the fuck is this? <laughs> yeah, you know, like yeah, yeah. okay. This is this is playing at South by Southwest. I know I, I could I could do this. You know, like I could I could knock this out of the water. So I think just just as much as we look at Mumblecore now as like a thing, I really do believe that like you know there's another sort of ever since then it's just it's just wave after wave of people feeling able to make yeah. films and feeling like it's within their reach. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm very excited for you know what's to come and and DIY filmmaking you mentioned Jarmusch and you know some other examples from when he did like down by law and you know you know permanent vacation all those things like mm-hmm. it's a kind of freedom that sometimes filmmakers wish they can retain you know everyone like I, I think of like the first short film I ever made and there's still so many parts of it that I like because I just didn't know the rules almost you know you didn't yeah. really you weren't so brainy or so, you know, analytical about things. And I think that's the spirit that we like so much about independent film ultimately is because there is a freedom and there is a kind of like, you know, there's a kind of like experimentation that we hope to sort of retain and achieve for all of our work. And when it becomes stifled, when it becomes a little too, when the intention gets sort of muddied in a sense is when we, know that we're not being as truthful as we can in our work. Um, but um, would, Paul, you mentioned... Well, you guys Paul, both you mentioned, nailed in, intention in your films. 
Uh, sorry, Lee. Um, uh-huh. I, I hope that you guys uh, go on uh, and check out each other's films. They, uh, yeah, one of the I can't wait to watch I your film, Quincy. Yeah, I, I invited you guys. One of the reasons, the main reason I invited you guys was because your your films are totally different. Um, I, I support the diversity thing and the 50-50, but I don't like, say, male or female director. We're all just filmmakers. We all just love talking endlessly about Lamed or Truffaut or... Um, we all know that uh, as the podcast comes to a close in a few minutes, that we know this could go six hours if we didn't have stuff to do. Um, <laughs> so um, I really highly encourage that you guys check out each other's films. I was, Absolutely, these were also yeah. two of, of the, we can never, um, as a host, I can never say top or favorite. Um, but what I wanted to mention to you guys was, was, one of our last guests, um, who was actually our first guest, has a film titled The Hollow that is a gritty crime uh, return to the 70s film uh, drama, and it's a kind of whodunit mystery, and it takes place in Mississippi, so it's not your Austin or Atlanta or New York, and it's a guy who wrote it, produced it, uh, directed it, started it. Um, his producer was the producer of The Theory of Everything. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm only saying that to show you the quality of where his work is, not to name drop. And uh, it's called The Hollow, and I think it comes out October 7th. Um, he's also oh yeah uh, Paul uh, I was going to say because yeah. you mentioned friends effing friends effing friends at the beginning we we don't come out until October 11th uh, on VOD um, we'll be on most VOD platforms immediately and then it'll start spreading more but my first film Miles to Go is available on all platforms and it's even free on Amazon mm-hmm. Prime if you have it uh, mm-hmm. and I'm very excited to oh, check out okay. uh, Lee's film yeah, it's on that iTunes, is, Amazon. It's on. It's all on the VOD platforms. We're, we hope to get SVOD something together it. for November. So, yay! Fantastic. I love That gives me a reason to get an Amazon trial because I have to get a Hulu trial to uh, review Lulu Wong's um, posthumous. So, um, yes. Basically, as we're in our last yeah. three minutes here. I just wanted to, I know I've thanked you guys um, over email and the phone, but uh, as a show, our team, our producers uh, uh, wanted to thank you because um, they did not see your films, of course, because I protect the screeners, but um, they really, or actually one did, and Quincy, you heard that dual review that we did. Um but uh, we just wanted to thank you because uh, when you talk about goal and intention, um, our goal and intention from day one was to not bring filmmakers together, but to have two filmmakers who don't know each other be on a show, talking about what they love, discovering each other's movies, 
And that was literally like why we did it. So when you talked about independent filmmakers getting together, it was so, uh, I mean, we celebrate our two year anniversary this week. Um, and it's oh, been Congratulations. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And this is going to be a series. So you guys are the first episode. We, we, I've already gotten contacted by some past guests who said they'd love to be in an episode like this. And then the last thing I'll say um, is you guys are welcome back uh, anytime to uh, mention a film, promote a work. If we've had guests who have actually uh, been on and just reviewed a film they saw recently. So uh, to us, everybody that comes on just becomes a talking pictures cousin. So, um, just to let you guys know, it's a open, permanent invite. You guys are now in the VIP line, so um, yeah. All we have to say here. Oh no, you're always like to talk movies. <laughs> oh yes, of course. And uh, uh, Quincy, I, I uh, you know, will be making it out to New York for some festivals. Would love to do a cup of coffee and. Lee, I <clears throat> I hope at one of these festivals we get to meet and um Absolutely. So yeah, thank you and, and I learned a lot from hearing you guys talk today and and so yeah, just much appreciation and best wishes with your current endeavors and, and I look forward to next time we interact. Absolutely, looking forward to that as well. Thank you everybody. Yeah, lovely chatting with you, Lee. Yes, lovely yes. to finally chat and, and meet you as well. All right, you guys, you have a wonderful, safe day, and you make too. sure and watch a good movie today or make a good movie. <laughs> Either <laughs> or. Have a great day, you guys. <laughs> All right, bye-bye. Right. Aloha. Bye. And there we are. We go into our last 20 seconds. What a wonderful time. I am so amped. I had to stay quiet to contain myself. Last 10 seconds, Talking Pictures is just going to say aloha and peace to all.